Episode 6, The Blackbird-Battenberg Paradox. A few days ago, whilst meditating, a memory came to me. A childhood memory appeared out of the emptiness as one complete scene. The image was of me as a giant-headed eight-year-old, looking out of our dining room window into the small square patch of turf we called a garden. My mother was kneeling on the path, her arm outstretched, palm upwards, the backs of her fingers lightly touching the concrete. In her hand are a few crumbs of bread or biscuit or cake, and soon a blackbird lands a few feet from her and cautiously hops towards her open hand. The bird stops inches from the crumbs and instinctively turns its head, as is their way, as if doubting the reality of the moment, before lunging forward, claiming the bounty and flying away. For the record, it definitely would have been bread or cake, not a bounty, because chocolate's very bad for birds, especially the red one. A recent scientific study found that not even vultures will eat a red bounty and they'll literally eat anything. Anyway, this happens a lot in meditation. A memory will bubble up from the depths and it can be subjectively good or bad or apparently neutral like this one. I can guess what I made of this scene as a bulbous, bonced eight-year-old child and that's probably not much. I suppose I would have looked out and seen my mum, who I'd already pegged as slightly odd even at that tender age, hand-feeding a blackbird. I suspect I would have subconsciously noted this scene unfold and then immediately turned my attention to my favourite Evil Knievel motorcycle toy. Yeah, you know, the one where you slotted the bike into a plastic stand and cranked the handle to maximum power, pressed a release button, and old Evil would burst out of the blocks in a shower of dust and rubber. Or at least that was what was supposed to happen. The TV ad showed Evil and his bike jumping over buses and canyons, drifting and skidding round corners and doing endos and wheelies all at breathtaking speed. Now, bear in mind that I played religiously with that toy for maybe two years and never, not once, no matter what I did, did I ever get Evil to go further than about arm's length away. I don't think it's at all dramatic to say that never in the history of children's toys has there been such a disparity between promise and reality. It goes to show the inherent emotional resilience of the human child that I would still feel the thrill of turning that bloody handle and pressing the button, all the while imagining that this time, maybe this time, evil would roar off, flip me the bird and jump the ramp I'd made from two Tintin books and a gerbil cage. I suppose one silver lining was that even when he flaccidly limped from the starting line and almost instantly succumbed to gravity right in front of me, he was still close enough for me to just pick him up, slot him back in and try again, like the eternally hopeful idiot I was, and still am. You can probably tell from my tone that I'm completely over this childhood trauma. I mean, I barely remember my fruitless attempts at propelling a plastic effigy of an American stuntman further than two feet down the hall. I can vaguely recall the damp misery of sitting hour after hour in a pool of tears because I just couldn't understand why Mr Knievel refused point-blank to jump over my dad's slippers, never mind the Grand Canyon. I'm sure I can speak for and call upon the rest of my generation to help crowdfund an appeal to the Supreme Court, stating the case that Hasbro Toys, the UK manufacturer, have stolen the happiness from our childhoods. 
Those memories should have been imbued with the joy of fulfilling play, but instead have become tainted and will forever be a badge of dismal disappointment. Even as an adult, I can hardly look at a line of park buses or a Confederate flag jumpsuit without welling up. But, as I was saying before being hijacked by Mr Knievel, as a kid I don't suppose I made much of this little vignette. However, it occurred to me after reliving it in meditation, what might it mean now, nearly 40 years later? In other words, could I consider this small echo of the past in a reflective manner and prize any wisdom from beneath its surface? Well, let's see, shall we? Oh God, do we have to? You might be saying, arms swinging by your sides in adolescent fury. Well, no, is the brief answer. If a memory comes to you in meditation or at any other time, there's no need to hold it down and waterboard it until it tells you where the drugs are. Buddhist philosophy and mindfulness practices insist on simply being aware of these mental events in a non-judgmental way and then letting them go, acknowledging them and then watching them pass. Conventional psychological therapies based on the awareness of thought patterns like cognitive behaviour therapy go one step further and challenge these thought patterns, questioning whether they are real or whether they are serving you in a positive or detrimental way. In my opinion, I just like reflecting on things that have happened to me, mulling over the different ways that I might have behaved or the different things I might have said or done. It can be a helpful exercise as long as it's performed without your inner critic assuming control. Exploring and analysing hypothetically the avenues we could take or have taken in life is a genuinely purposeful practice in itself. Through this practice we can highlight and address the areas where we may have done or said something wrong or right and then either change or cultivate those areas. One thing that bears repeating is to be careful that your inner critic doesn't seize absolute power. By this I mean that each area of analysis should be viewed impartially under the microscope with a clear sense of forgiveness and compassion directed at yourself. Believe me, no good comes from mindlessly overanalyzing your behaviours without the twin practices of attention and self-compassion. Without them, you will inevitably be drawn into old models of behaviour that usually reinforce the precise habits that you're trying to challenge and change. If you do decide to look inward and explore, shine the light kindly on yourself without unnecessary judgment or reprimand. Now you may have noticed that I said without unnecessary judgment. Sometimes or maybe repeatedly in the eyes of the law or society or moral and ethical convention, you will do something wrong. I mean, subjectively and relatively wrong. You will do 63 miles an hour, on a dual carriageway, you will make a veggie chilli and you will say you've got your own bag at a self-service checkout when you know perfectly well that you've just stuffed the ingredients for a chilli non-carne into one of theirs. These are three examples of misdemeanours I've committed just today and all of these things are categorically and undeniably wrong. But I have heeded my own words and suffused my scrutiny of these wrongdoings with awareness and compassionate forgiveness. And although I remain accountable for these crimes, I have acknowledged them and set an intention to try my best to not behave in the same way again. I will, however, make vegetarian chilli again because it was well good. It's proper tasty with my secret ingredient of beef stock. 
Ah, uh, oh well, back to the intentions drawing board. Right, hang on, where are we? Oh yeah, mum, garden, feeding the birds. You remember that? that? That wasn't last week's episode, that was this week's, unbelievably enough. Anyway, let's try to get back on track. So, what can be learned from studying this recollection? If we look close enough at this memory, can any of the characteristics of human wisdom be seen? Let's look at the most basic way to describe my mum's actions. As we mentioned earlier, she's hand feeding a bird in the garden. But what can be seen if we zoom in? What aspects of the human condition are being demonstrated here? What can I learn now from her behaviour then? The first word that comes to mind is respect. And by that I'm referring to her respect and love for nature. The arrival of this memory sparked many others of her and her connection with the natural world. Barely six months before she died, she would hobble out into the garden and throw some crusts onto the shed roof, using about all the energy she must have had by that point. Just so she could watch Sydney, her beloved seagull friend, swoop down and take his reward. I know that she got so much enjoyment from this, from how upset she was when she found out a few months later that our neighbour, who didn't share her passion for wildlife, had poisoned Sydney and his mates. As I hinted at earlier, Mum could sometimes rub you up the wrong way. I think sometimes she found it hard to show love for the human animals around her, yet her love and esteem for flora and fauna transcended her difficulties with the human race, and at least for her, provided some sense of meaning and happiness, I hope. And as I have aged, this respect and need for nature has fostered itself in me. As much as I might not like to admit it in company, I love walking the dogs in all weathers and frequently find myself putting out monkey nuts for the squirrels and even the odd bounty for the passing albatrosses. Alba, albatross, uh, albatry? So right there we have two perennial aspects of human wisdom. The apparent requirement for transcendent passions and an intimacy with the natural world slash universe. My mum, rather efficiently, placed these two together. Well done, mum. Going into great detail now about these characteristics of wisdom is beyond the scope of this episode, but fear not, I will address them ad nauseum at later dates, so don't you worry about that, my old mucker. My mum's profound admiration for the natural world is the principal quality that springs to mind when considering this scene. And I feel as if this is probably the most significant quality and that any other aspects found will probably nestle under the umbrella of this primary revelation. Next, I considered the requirements for achieving the task she had clearly set herself, the feeding of the wild bird. If you've ever tried to get near to a wild animal, you'll know it's not an easy process as I found out when I tried to catch a live badger for Eggpan Stan's birthday party. The trust of the creature must be won, and within the context of the natural world, trust is earned slowly, for one wrong move can mean death. Trust is synonymous with faith. It is the conviction in the truth of something or someone, and in hindsight I can see my mum's faith in this process. Faith gets a bad press from the non-believers in the choir, but its essence is central to religious and spiritual practices. And these practices exist because on some level we all feel and fear the emptiness and absurdity of existence. And belief, blind as it might be, 
provides at least a modicum of comfort for those suffering. Faith in this sense, as my mum was demonstrating it, has nothing to do with proof or evidence. Her complete confidence in her goal was enough. She trusted the process, even though there were surely large tracts of doubt present in the rest of her life. She may have felt many times like quitting, but she never did. She had faith and was committed to her goal, and I can only imagine that this was fortified by her deep affection for nature. I think that she understood, perhaps unconsciously, that she already had a connection with the earth, that she knew somehow she wasn't separated from the land or seas or sky. She was an atheist herself, but her faith manifested itself in nature, as nature. After all, she was an expression of the energy of the universe, as we all are. This victorious image of the bird taking food from her hand is an image likely near the end of a long succession of previously failed attempts. To earn the trust of a wild bird, my mum would have gone out and knelt on the path day after day, failing day after day. A goal of this sort not only requires a physical stillness, but also a mental stillness, a characteristic we might call patience. Patience, or the capacity to tolerate or accept suffering or failure and to remain composed, is a quality needed in both meditation and in general life. My mum's desire to fulfil her objective of connection with nature would have been strong. She was a bull-headed old fruit at the best of times, but with a task so slow and potentially lengthy, sheer perseverance was likely not enough. What occurs to me as funny now is that she was certainly not patient in other aspects of her life. In fact, her inability to tolerate my failures at school were spectacular. If I remember correctly, one time she got so incandescent with rage because I'd failed a mock exam that she threw first her glasses at me and then rather strangely for an ardent animal rights activist, she picked up our pet gerbil and then launched that at me. You'll be glad to hear it survived if a little traumatised. So yes, patience wasn't her strong suit in all areas, but nobody's perfect. I wish in a way that she'd been able to recognise how she completely let go of herself when she waited patiently on the path for the birds. As the rest of her waking hours were spent careering back and forth between rage and disbelief and guilt and shame, like most people, in order to provide themselves with the illusion of an immutable and permanent identity or personality, she clung on with impressive force to her ideologies and beliefs. And sadly, she was unable to see that they did not serve her well and that she was creating problem after problem for herself through this entanglement with her ideas. I'll never forget having a conversation with her a few weeks before she died. I was sat on the edge of her bed and she was by that point, thanks to bowel cancer, literally skin and bone. Her mind was still sharp though, and when she had the strength she would still enjoy a conversation. This time I remember talking to her about the issue of illegal immigration in a town nearby. Now, for your information, she'd been a lifelong xenophobe, not openly racist but certainly fond of a stereotype. But on this occasion, she was being sympathetic to the immigrants' cause and I was slightly shocked and also approaching being proud of her, thinking that maybe that having to face her mortality had finally shifted her perspective. 
Without thinking, I moved the conversation onto what issues these people might be having, i.e. homelessness, poverty, addiction, etc. She showed some interest in this last suggestion, asking what I meant by addiction problems. Well, I said again, encouraged by her interest, these people may have issues with drugs. Some of them might be alcoholics. At this last word, she mustered all of her vitriol and virtually screamed, well, in that case, they can all die in the street for all I care. And then she sank back exhausted into her pillows. I think we sat in silence for a while. She'd nurtured this feeling of frustration with her father's absenteeism due to an alcohol problem her whole life. She carried it with her like an ember, never allowing it to go out. Obviously, it still burned brightly even at the close of her life, and I can't express how tragic this was to witness. I believe this is why we need to pay attention and reflect, even upon the small stuff. If Mum had done so, she might have realised that she could have gradually let go and moved onward from her hatred of her father. She might have seen that the clarity of thought and feeling that manifested in her experiences with nature weren't something separate from the rest of her life. If she could have witnessed that everything and everyone is connected, she might have been able to empathise better with her fellow human beings and not clung on for dear life to an avatar of herself, one that represented the least genuine and worst version of her. You could argue, quite validly, that I'm guessing here, seeing something where there is nothing. And I concur, I could be. However, for the purposes of a contemplative exercise, it doesn't really matter. Being right or wrong is not the point. She could have equally been thinking, right, I don't care how long this takes, I'm going to get this bird to eat from my hand, and then, when it does, I'll have taken nature for a right mug. Yeah, wild bird, my ass. All it took was seven months and 173 slices of Battenberg and I got the idiot eating right out of my hand. Hashtag winning. Now, I know that my mother, as temperamental as she could be, was not anything like that. You can rest assured that the moment of success in this story, i.e. the bird taking the cake, would have been the start of the journey. The next day she would have been out on the path again, continuing to cultivate her relationship with nature. Really, there was no goal for her. If she'd become a legendary bird whisperer and had golden eagles eating fig rolls from a leather gauntlet, there would have been no hubris. Or alternatively, if nothing had ever happened, it wouldn't have mattered to her in the least. Her actions in this sense were pure. I believe that on some level she understood that her behaviour represented the aspect of our conscious experience that points towards the eternal, the feeling of transcendence that reconnects your consciousness with the world around you and teases us with a glimpse of the infinite within our apparently finite lives. So, to recap, this has been a pointless post-mortem thought exercise. We've examined the corpse of a memory and arguably we've stripped from its bones some features of human wisdom. In particular, unity with nature, patience, faith, and the need for transcendent passions. Another interesting exercise, I think, is to look at this scene in its entirety and see if it has any metaphorical value. Buddhists usually get in a right old kerfuffle when trying to describe what the bloody hell they're going on about, so they love a metaphor. 
It's a chance to use something normal or even mundane to articulate the extraordinary serenity and space available to all that's lurking just behind the curtains of our conscious experience. So here's what I come up with. The memory of my mum feeding a wild bird in the garden makes for a half-decent figurative expression of the process of meditation. In a way, it was a meditation for her. It was a regular time in her day to sit in the garden and wait. An opportunity for her to temporarily lay aside any quotidian grief and responsibilities and just be there, ready to accept whatever it was that was going to happen. It was a genuinely goalless goal. And this notion transposes directly onto the practice of Zazen, or silent seated meditation. This activity too has no clear purpose, but as we sit and listen to the murmur of our minds, the frequent arrival and departure of thoughts and sensations, we might sometimes feel the frustration of our expectations as we notice that our bird isn't here. And yet we find ourselves fighting off the attention of every other animal in the garden. Or conversely, we might feel elated at the instant appearance of our wild friend, pecking time and time again at the crumbs in our hand. Anything could happen, and that's okay. A central aphorism of Buddhism is to meet every moment with grace and equanimity, whether it be subjectively good, bad or indifferent. Witness these moments appear and then dissolve without judging them. This is the practice of meditation, the cultivation of patience in the face of frustration and faith in the impermanence of our experience. Now, I don't want to get too fight club on you, but in this meditation metaphor, the blackbird you're waiting for to feed is already here with you. She's always perched on your fingertips, chirping merrily and bloated with Battenberg. And you can't see her because you're looking at the wrong hand, the one that's probably got your phone in. <laughs>